Please be seated. As you take your seat, you can turn in your copy of the Word of God to Luke chapter 2. We'll look at verses 36 through 38 this morning. Luke 2, verse 36 through 38. Our third scripture lesson, as Nick mentioned a few moments ago. Last week, we looked at Simeon as he was drawn to the temple to see the baby Jesus, whom God had promised him he would see before his death. Today we get, as Paul Harvey has said, the rest of the story, as Luke had not simply one witness, but two important, incredible witnesses who would enjoy the blessing of seeing the Lord Jesus, the baby Jesus, presented at the temple. Today we look at Anna, and Luke tells us about her in three brief verses. Three brief verses, but three packed verses to speak of this great, great woman of faith. Simeon was drawn to the temple, and while he was not a prophet, he did prophesy. Hannah was already at the temple. And the Bible tells us she was a prophetess. I want you to notice this morning uh, five things. Number one, her identity. Then secondly, her difficulty. Third, her devotion. Fourth, her gratitude. And fifth, her witness for Jesus Christ. But before we do that, let's ask the Lord to bless our time of study together. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus in him only. And I pray that your spirit would move in our midst and that you would touch hearts and lead us in the way that we should go, every one of us, as you define it in our lives. We'll give you the praise and glory for all that you will do. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, I want you to notice Anna's identity. And we see that in the first portion of verse 36. It says, There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. In addition to her name, Luke tells us she was a prophetess. That is to say, she had the gift of prophecy. What is the gift of prophecy? Well, we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we find it in verse 3. Paul said, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. And so she was one who could speak clearly to build up, to encourage, and offer consolation and hope to others. We'll see evidence of this at the end of this passage. We find others with this gift in the Old Testament, people like Miriam and Deborah and Huldah. We also have a New Testament example in Philip's virgin daughters. He had four daughters, according to Acts 21, verse 9, who were all considered prophetesses. The Talmud recognized seven prophetesses, and so this was no ordinary distinction. Now, the title doesn't mean that she constantly foretold the future or that she put herself forward publicly But it means that she knew and interpreted the word 
and the will of God for edification. Lots of people have the gift of prophecy. And to indicate her importance, Luke adds the name of her father and of the tribe to which she belonged, Asher, one of the tribes of northern Israel, one of the ten lost tribes. And so right from the beginning, we have the identity of this woman. And I think it's significant because, once again, the Lord wanted to point to not only Simeon, not only a man, but also to Anna, a woman, as one of the two witnesses, we might say, from the Old Testament who would bear witness to the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Anna had an identity. And every child of God has a specific, particular identity. Every child of God is known by the Lord from the foundation of the world. Every child of God has an assortment of gifts and talents and abilities that God wants to use from that particular individual. We're living in a world that is struggling to find a sense of identity. A world filled with people who don't know who they are. And brothers and sisters, I don't know of anything else that gives one a better sense of his or her identity than the Lord Jesus Christ, who has known us before the foundation of the world. Anna's identity ought to be, in a sense, your identity and my identity. Notice, secondly, her difficulty. Look at the latter part of verse 36 and the first part of 37. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. It's unclear how old she was. The rendering of the language here means that Luke is either pointing to her current age, which might be 84, or the fact that as most Jewish women, they married at about the age of 14, and uh, after seven years of marriage, she became a widow. And so if you add all that to 84, this woman could have been as much as 105, if my math is correct. Being a widow in the ancient world was a horrible plight. They were often left without any means of support, especially if they had no other extended family members to help them. You can see uh, living color, a picture of this in the book of Ruth. Remember Naomi? And her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, all of them lost their husbands. And when Ruth returned to her hometown, she said, "Don't call, excuse me, Naomi, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, the word for bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. It was a very, very difficult thing, and even considered by some Jews as a curse. A woman losing her husband. Well, how much more when a woman loses her husband after only seven years of marriage? Paul devotes a large portion of 1 Timothy chapter 5 to the care of widows. He says, honor widows who are widows indeed. And so Anna, we conclude, knew the pain of heavy loss. But she did not grow bitter. The Lord used the difficulty of Anna's life to bring forth the beauty of of her character for his glory. Let me say that again. The Lord used the difficulty of Anna's life to bring forth the beauty of her character for his glory. She had nowhere to go. She had no one to turn to. And with that set of circumstances, she turned to the Lord. 
You know, the Lord often uses difficult circumstances in our lives to refine our faith or to bring forth greater closeness and intimacy and devotion to him. As the Apostle Paul discovered, Christ's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And weakness comes with difficulties. Whenever you suffer financial reversal, whenever you suffer from emotional trauma, depression, whenever a child lets you down or disappoints you, or if you're raised in a family where there's much evil taking place, God has a way of using our circumstances for his glory. And if there were no difficulty, you would never see your need. You see, difficulties in life are the things that drive us to the bosom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that is, our bodies, so that the surpassing greatness of the power of God would be from him and not from ourselves. We're always caring about the body, in the body, the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. What did Paul mean there? That is a picture of strength through weakness. We realize our weakness. We realize our limitations. We realize how mortal we are when difficulties come. It has a tendency to push us in the direction of trust and faith, not in ourselves, not in our network of friends and relationships, not in our money and resources, but in God. In God. Hannah's difficulty came. And I want you to see that it drove her to a great, great devotion. Look at verse 37b. This is the heart of the text and where I want to spend the bulk of the time this morning. The text says, She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. Anna's difficult circumstances led to a life of devotion to God. It led to a life of refuge in the Lord. Psalm 46.1 speaks of that. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Hannah is what you call a widow indeed. If you look back at 1 Timothy chapter 5, where Paul gives the instructions about widows in the church, he says, honor widows who are widows indeed. In verse 3, and he goes on to say, She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Now you see, Luke's intention here is not to emphasize the activities of Anna's life, but the integrity and the intensity of her devotion to the Lord. Don't miss that. We're called to imitate the faith of those who have gone before us, not their particular activities or personalities. You should not read this and say, well, I need to, like Anna, never leave the temple, the church, and I need to be offering prayers and fasting all the time. That's not the point. The point is her intensity of devotion. The intensity of her devotion. 
you want to imitate John the Baptist. If you want to be like John the Baptist, you'll do it not by finding a camel's hair coat and eating locusts and wild honey. You'll find it by imitating the godliness in his life. I remember when we were in seminary, one of the professors said, if you want to be like Charles Spurgeon, that great Baptist preacher of many years ago, then don't go out and buy cigars and smoke them like he did. No. Imitate his faith. That's what is unique and timeless. Not the external things. And when you look at Anna, the thing that is unique and timeless is her devotion to the Lord. Anna's life is marked by this devotion. In Anna, we see an earnest, forceful attempt to dwell close to God. You know, we read that unusual passage in Matthew chapter 11 this morning where Jesus speaks of John the Baptist. And in verse 12, he says, From the days of John the Baptist and, and the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and violent men take it by force. The word is biadzo. It means to urge, to constrain, to overpower by force, to rush in. Some people have interpreted this as the kingdom of God being under assault. But I think the better interpretation is the kingdom of God forcefully advancing. And what Jesus meant as he put this verse right in the middle of this explanation of John the Baptist is that when you look at John, you see someone who was pushing his way in, someone who was forceful to know his God, someone who wanted to be close to the throne of Almighty God and who wanted to be there when Messiah came, just like Elijah of old. It means a violence of affections. You know, one of the tragedies in the Christian life and I think it's especially true in North America is that often when Christians, uh, someone becomes a Christian, we simply look at it as we got a gift for Christmas. We're in. We punched our card. We trust in Jesus Christ. But that's as far as it goes. And what the Christian life teaches is that that's only the beginning. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you spend the rest of your life in an earnest attempt to be as close to God as you possibly can, seeking his face, earnestly desiring him, praying and bringing his presence closer and closer to you. Listen to the words of Psalm 42.1. As a deer pants for water brooks, so my soul thirsts for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? There is the violence of affection. To be close to the Lord. Psalm 63, verse 1. O oh God, you are my God. I shall seek thee earnestly and early. My soul thirsts for thee. My flesh yearns for thee in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. Psalm 84, which we read a little while ago, is our first reading for the day. The picture is of a pilgrim who is far away from the temple, and he longs to get back there. In that day, the temple represented the name of God, the very presence of God. And the psalmist is struggling and agonizing. He wants to be back there. But because of sickness or because of illness, he can't be there. And in verse 10, he says, A day in your courts, a day in your courts is, a is better than a thousand outside. 
And I would rather be a doorkeeper. I'd rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. He's saying, I'd rather stand in the beating sun and be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the shade of the tents of the wicked. Why? Because he knows that his soul is satisfied when he is in the presence of God. This is the lifelong pursuit of the Christian. You know, we're taught that we're supposed to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We don't glorify God any more than when we're worshiping and seeking his face with a red-hot devotion. That's why the Lord told one of the churches in Asia Minor, I wish you were hot, I wish you were cold, but this neutrality thing doesn't cut it with me. You're lukewarm. And a salvation like we have in Jesus Christ ought to create and stir a sense of violent affection to know the living God. A violent affection to keep on mortifying the deeds of the flesh. A violent affection that says, Lord, I don't want anybody to be closer to you than me. I want to sense your presence in your word and in prayer when I worship. I want that kind of relationship with the living God. That is what we ought to emulate in the life of Anna. Her devotion to the Lord is a beautiful thing. And we ought to follow that devotion. Anna's devotion should be our devotion. Is there a red-hot intensity in your life to know the Lord? You've been converted. Do you read your Bible? Do you pray? Do you seek God's face in the morning? That is the mark of a Christian. A hunger, a yearning, a desire to know him better. Just like Moses in Exodus 33, he said, Lord, I want to know you and I want to know your ways. And he finally said, show me thy glory. And he risked death to get a little closer to the living God. That's the way our hearts should be. So much of Christianity is lukewarm and insipid, especially in these United States of America, because that yearning and desire, which is so prevalent in the Old Testament, is not present that much in believers. Let me challenge you with that this morning. May Anna's devotion be our devotion to the living God. Well, notice quickly and fourthly her gratitude. Look at verse 38a. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God. Anna could not help but give thanks for the birth of Jesus. She had a spiritual insight as a prophetess to see that this baby embodied God's plan of redemption for his people. I have to ask the question, what was the source of her happiness? Well, it's the same source for our happiness and joy and our desire to give thanks to God. Anna had been given one of the greatest gifts of God, and it's not present in this passage. We can't see it. But that is this. The Lord graciously allowed her to see the magnitude of her sin. It is the magnitude of our sin that leads us to see how magnificent our Savior is. Brian Chapel, the stated clerk of our denomination, puts it this way of the Apostle Paul. The more Paul recognized the magnitude of his sin, the more the cross of Jesus was magnified in his heart. And whenever the cross of Christ is magnified, 
you can't help but give thanks because you realize that this baby embodies all that God's redemption means. And I can't help but living the rest of my life giving thanks to God for saving me from my sins. But if you don't pause and ask God to show you from his word the magnitude of your sin, you won't have a great appreciation, a great joy, and a great sense of thanksgiving without that. Even when we repent, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11, where he was comparing godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, he said in verse 11, we behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. That is the flip side of godly joy and happiness. When I realize that I'm bankrupt spiritually. That's why Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They recognize that they have a bankrupt soul. And they need a Savior who loves them. And who gave his blood and his life in order to redeem them from what Paul calls the domain of darkness. From Satan's power. This woman was not only devoted, she was grateful. And of course the application is Anna's gratitude should be our gratitude, especially at this time of the year. That we can look at the baby Jesus and realize the Lord brought him into life this way, but he didn't stay as a baby in a manger. He grew up and he lived and died and shed his blood so that your sins and my sins would be atoned for. And so that we could stand before a holy God clothed in Righteousness. That's what this supper represents. The body and the blood of Jesus, which was given for us. You'll never be truly thankful. You'll never be truly grateful until you recognize the magnitude of your sin and the beauty of our Savior and the cross magnified to pay the penalty for our sins. Well, we have her identity, we have her difficulty, her devotion, her gratitude. Finally, her witness in verse 38b. She continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Jerusalem means the same as Israel in verse 25, if we had it in front of us. It was the place where God's deliverance of his people would start, according to Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You shall receive power, and you shall be my witnesses, Jesus said, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the other parts of the earth. And while Anna served in the temple night and day, it's clear that she found time to evangelize her neighbors. Perhaps this took place in the temple, but I suspect she also left the temple for brief periods to tell others about Jesus. You should not read she never left the temple as literal. What he's saying, in essence, is she was continually at the temple, blessing God. That's what it says of the disciples. In Luke chapter 24, verse 53, the disciples were continually in the temple, blessing God. I believe Anna took time with anybody who got in her way to tell them about Jesus Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13, But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe. Therefore, I spoke. We also believe, and therefore we also speak. One of the fundamental marks of a person's belief and trust in Jesus Christ 
is what gratitude leads toward. If you truly have the joy of the Lord and you're truly thankful for what Christ has done for you, you cannot help but in some way share that with others. It is a desire that is inherent. Whenever you have been rescued, whenever you have been brought out of the domain of darkness into his marvelous light, I'm not saying you need to become a preacher or a teacher, but in some way, God uses the witness of every one of his children. Sometimes it's quiet. Other times it's louder or lengthy. But it's something. Because you can't help but give thanks for God's free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Just as Anna's gratitude ought to be our gratitude, Anna's witness ought to be our witness. Ask God to bring somebody across your pathway in order to share the good news with them at this time of the year of Christmas and all through the year. May God bless us and thank God for someone like Anna. And I pray more than anything that we would have the same type of faith, the same type of zeal, the same type of devotion and gratitude, and the same witness to others around us concerning Anna's Savior, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this marvelous woman of faith who you spoke so briefly about, and yet her life represents so much of what it means to be a Christian. Lord, may we learn, and we pray that your Spirit would bring forth inside of our own hearts and lives the very characteristics that we see in this wonderful woman of God. Lord, bless us to that end now as we enjoy communion with you as we take of the bread and wine in this supper and all that it represents. We make our prayer in Jesus' name.